Section 10 of The Lost Valley. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Jared Wetzel Brown. The Lost Valley by Algernon Blackwood. Section 10. Then, having come into the gloom of this terrible decision, his imaginative nature at once bounded to the opposite extreme and a kind of exultation possessed him. The stereotyped verdict of a coroner's jury might in this instance have been true. The prolonged stress of emotion under which he had so long been laboring had at last produced a condition of mind that could only be considered unsound. A cool wind swept his face as he let his tired eyes wander over the leagues of silent forest below. The blue Jea, with its myriad folded valleys, lay about him like the waves of a giant sea ready to swallow up the little atom of his life within its deep heart of forgetfulness. Clear away into France he saw on the one side where, beyond the fortress of Pantalier, white clouds sailed the horizon before a westerly wind, and, on the other, towards the white-robed Alps rising mistily through the haze of the autumn sunshine. Between these extreme distances lay all that world of a hundred intricate valleys, curiously winding, deeply wooded, little inhabited, a region of soft, confusing loveliness where a traveler might well lose himself for days together before he discovered a way out of so vast a maze. And, as he gazed, there passed across his mind, like the dim memory of something heard in childhood, that legend of the lost valley in which the souls of the unhappy dead find the deep peace that is denied to them by all the religions, and to which hundreds, who have not yet the sad rite of entry, seek to find the mournful forest gates. The memory was vivid, but swiftly engulfed by others and forgotten. They chased each other in rapid succession across his mind, as clouds at sunset pass before a high wind, merging on the horizon in a common mass. Then, slowly, at length, he turned and made his way down the mountainside in the direction of the French frontier for a last journey upon the sweet surface of the world he loved. In his soul was the one dominant feeling, this singular exultation arising from the knowledge that in the long run his great sacrifice must ensure the happiness of the two beings he loved more than all else in life. At the solitary farm where an hour later he had his lunch of bread and cheese and milk, he learned that he had wandered many miles out of the routes with which he was more or less familiar. He had been walking faster than he knew all these hours of battle. A physical weariness came upon him that made him conscious of every muscle in his body as he realized what a long road over mountain and valley he had to retrace, but with a heaviness of fatigue ran still that sense of interior spiritual exaltation. Something in him walked on air with springs of steel, something that was independent of the dragging limbs and the aching back. For the rest, his sensations seemed numb. His great decision stood black before him, blocking the way. Thoughts and feelings forsook him as rats leave a sinking ship. The time for these was past. Two overmastering desires, however, clung fast, one to see Mark again and be with him, the other to be once more with her. These two desires left no room for others. With the former, indeed, it was almost as though Mark had called aloud to him by name. 
He stood a moment where the depth of the valley he had to thread lay like a twisting shadow at his feet. It ran, soft and dim, through the slanting sunshine. From the whole surface of the woods rose a single murmur, like the whirring of voices heard in a dream, he thought. The individual purring of separate trees was merged. Peace, most ancient and profound, lay in it, and its hushed whisper soothed his spirit. He hurried his pace a little. The cool wind that had swept his face on the heights earlier in the afternoon followed him down, urging him forwards with deliberate pressure, as though a thousand soft hands were laid upon his back. And there were spirits in the wind that day. He heard their voices, and far below he traced by the motion of the treetops where they coiled upwards to him through miles of forest. His way, meanwhile, dived down through dense growths of spruce and pine into a region unfamiliar. There was an aspect of the scenery that almost suggested it was unknown, an undiscovered corner of the world. The countless signs that marked the passage of humanity were absent, or at least did not obtrude themselves upon him. Something remote from life, alien, at any rate, to the normal life he had hitherto known, began to steal gently over his burdened soul. In this way, perhaps, the effect of his dreadful decision already showed its influence upon his mind and senses. So very soon now he would be going. The sadness of autumn lay all about him, and the loneliness of this secluded vale spoke to him of the melancholy of things that die, of vanished springs, of summers unfulfilled, of things forever incomplete and unsatisfying. Human effort, he felt, this valley had never known. No hooves had ever pressed the mossy turf of these forest clearings. No traffic of peasants or woodsmen won echoes from these limestone cliffs. All was hushed, lonely, deserted. And yet, the depths to which it apparently plunged astonished him more and more. Nowhere more than half a mile across, each turn of the shadowy trail revealed new distances below. With spots of a haunting, fairy loveliness, too. For here and there, on isolated patches of lawn-like grass, stood wild lilac bushes, rounded by the wind. Willows from the swampy banks of the stream waved pale hands. Firs, dark and erect, guarded their eternal secrets on the heights. In one little opening, standing all by itself, he found a lime tree, while beyond it, shining among the pines, was a group of shimmering beeches, and, although there was no wildlife, there were flowers. He saw clumps of them, tall, graceful, blue flowers whose name he did not know, nodding in dream across the foaming water of the little torrent. And his thoughts ran incessantly to Mark. Never before had he been conscious of so imperious a desire to see him, to hear his voice, to stand at his side. At moments it almost obliterated that other great desire. Again, he increased his pace and the path plunged more and more deeply into the heart of the mountain, sinking ever into deeper silence, ever into an atmosphere of deeper peace. For no sound could reach him here without first passing along great distances that were cushioned with soft wind and padded, as it were, with a million feathery pine tops. A sense of peace that was beyond reach of all possible disturbance began to cover his breaking life with a garment as of softest shadows, Never before had he experienced anything approaching the wonder and completeness of it. It was a peace, still at the depths of the sea, which are motionless because they cannot move, cannot even tremble. 
It was a peace unchangeable, what some have called perhaps the peace of God. Soon the turn must come, he thought, yet without a trace of impatience or alarm, and the road wind upwards again to cross the last ridge. But he cared little enough, for this enveloping peace drowned him, hiding even the fear of death. And still the road sank downwards into the sleep-laden atmosphere of the crowding trees, and with it his thoughts, oddly enough, sank deeper and deeper into dim recesses of his own being, as though a secret sympathy lay between the path that dived and the thoughts that plunged. Only from time to time the thought of his brother Mark brought him back to the surface with a violent rush. Dreadfully, in those moments he wanted him, to feel his warm, strong hand within his own, to ask his forgiveness, perhaps, too, to grant his own. He hardly knew. But is there no end to this delicious valley, he wondered, with something between vagueness and confusion in his mind. Does it never stop, and the path climb again to the mountains beyond? Drowsily, divorced from any positive interest, the question passed through his thoughts. Underfoot, the grass already grew thickly enough to muffle the sound of his footsteps. The trail even had vanished, swallowed by moss. His feet sank in. I wish Mark were with me now, to see and feel all this. He stopped short, and looked keenly about him for a moment, leaving the thought incomplete. A deep sign, instantly caught by the wind and merged in the soughing of the trees, had sounded close beside him. Was it perhaps himself that sighed? unconsciously? His heart was surely charged enough. A faint smile played over his lips, instantly frozen. However, as another sigh, more distinct than the first, and quite obviously external to himself, passed him closely in the darkening air. More like deep breathing, though, it was than sighing. It was nothing but the wind, of course. Stephen hurried on again, not surprised that he had been so easily deceived, for this valley was full of signs and breathings, of trees and wind. It ventured upon no louder noise. Noise of any kind, indeed, seemed impossible and forbidden in this muted vale, and so deeply had he descended now that the sunshine, silver rather than golden, already streamed past far over his head along the ridges, and no gleam found its way to where he was. The shadows, too, no longer blue and purple, had changed to black, as though woven of some delicate substance that had definite thickness, like a veil. Across the opposite slope, one of the mountain summits in the western sky already dropped its monstrous shadow fringed with pines. The day was rapidly drawing in. End of section 10